everyone. I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. When my husband Chris was 37 years old, he noticed some weakness in two fingers on his right hand. A couple of months after that, he noticed some muscle wasting on the outside of his right palm, and by then we knew what was coming for us. Not even a year earlier, Chris's dad had died of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, the terminal neurodegenerative disease that kills the motor neurons that enable muscle movement, leaving those afflicted eventually unable to move, talk, eat, and breathe on their own. Doctors told Chris he had 6 to 12 months to live. That was more than two years ago. Since then, Chris's voice has changed, and he's lost the use of his right hand, along with the ability to smile, make facial expressions, and swallow most foods. But thanks to a promising clinical trial, he is still here. The medicine hasn't stopped Chris's ALS, but it has given us the gift of time. Time to be better people, to love each other more completely, to learn things about ourselves, and to see the world in a different way. We have learned, and are still learning, hard, painful lessons about how to live in this place where sadness and joy, pain and beauty, devastation and hope all coexist. What I've learned about life is that grief is, of course, universal. And while sharing the constant push and pull of my grief feels right to me, I know it's not for everybody. Still, I think that even if you don't want to share your story out loud with the world, you want to hear other people's stories. You want to feel that sense of community. You want to know that you aren't out there in this alone. And that's really what this podcast is. A space where we can talk about our grief honestly, where we can share with the world these raw parts of ourselves and see what happens when we do that. Because in my experience, what happens when I do that is I feel stronger and I feel lighter. I feel like I can keep going. And that's how I hope you feel after listening. meet Drew Robinson, a 29-year-old who lives in his hometown of Las Vegas, Nevada, loves his dogs, has an infectious smile, and was drafted out of high school in the fourth round by Major League Baseball's Texas Rangers. Drew spent more than a decade playing professional baseball, including about a year total in the big leagues. His first hit in the majors was a home run. He's a goofball with his friends, and he's close with his family. He's handsome and athletic and young and seems to have it all. But as is the case almost always in life, things are not what they seem on the surface. What you can't see while listening to this conversation is the physical reminder of the worst day of Drew's life, the day his life almost, should have, ended. Drew is missing his right eye as a result of injuries from a suicide attempt on April 16th, 2020. This is a story about that day, yes but it is also about the totality of Drew's life, about what led to that day and about all that has come after. It's about thinking you have nothing to live for, and then, by some miracle, surviving and realizing how wrong you were. It's about having the hard conversations, about asking for help, and about making it your actual job to encourage others to do the same. In this conversation, you'll hear me refer to an E60 episode about Drew. E60 is an ESPN documentary series. You'll also hear me refer to a story that my friend Jeff Passan, who did the reporting for the E60 as well, wrote about Drew. I have linked to that story and the trailer for the E60 in the description of this episode. 
This conversation contains details about Drew's suicide attempt and about suicidal ideation and suicidal thoughts. If you or someone you love is struggling with these things, please reach out for help. In Canada, call 1-833-456-4566 or text 45645. Again, that's 1-833-456-4566 or text 45645. In the United States, call 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. Today might be horrible. Tomorrow might be too. But if you can get help, if you have someone to walk beside you, if you can hold on, it will get better. This is Drew's story. Sorry I'm Sad is a labor of love, and I mean that literally. From finding guests and researching topics to preparing for interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of time, energy, and thought go into each ad-free episode. If you value this podcast and want to support it, please go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow to become a member. Your contribution will help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and give you access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. So you're home in Las Vegas right now? Yeah. Nice. My my godparents used to live in Las Vegas. My aunt was a florist at the Bellagio. Dang, really? Yeah, yeah. Be part of that, uh, like the the like the extravagant, like the show part of it. Yeah, like I think the, I call it, but it's like the yeah, you know, like a play, and it's like this most the most amazing flower art, like art artistry. Yeah, I think she did that. I've seen it. Yeah. And I think she did that like off and on. And then she also did stuff like in the rooms and all sorts of, she worked at Caesar's palace and then the Bellagio also, they lived there for a long time. Now they live in the town that I grew up in, in South Dakota, which is 900 people. So that's a change. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That's, eventually I want to do that too. I, eventually I want like, if I'm comfortable enough to retire, like at a younger age, mm-hmm. I want to move to a really small town and just like, and just relax. <laughs> Do you really, Drew? <laughs> yeah. So my one of my closest friends from baseball lives in a town of like it's not that small, but I think he says like eight thousand or ten thousand people, which is obviously way smaller than Vegas. Um, but I go visit him every every off season usually for like a week, mm-hmm. and every time I'm there, I'm just like in love with it. Yeah. Like the people there are so nice. His family's awesome, and just like the scenery and houses and stuff everything is just so different um, yeah i'd say where where is the small town it's called amherst ohio oh nice amherst, ohio. it's like 45 minutes outside of cleveland okay so it's nice that you're like near a city if you want to access the city exactly like, where i grew up everything is small and <laughs> the biggest like the biggest city nearby well the biggest city city in south dakota is sioux falls it's like hello <laughs> Yeah, like, hey. like, I want to play with a ball. <laughs> um, is like 250,000 people. So it's still really little. So wow. it's like a four and a half hour drive to um, Minneapolis. That's like really the closest actual city, oh. I guess. Yeah. So yeah. it's little. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, actually, even like um, last year when I was recovering, I was just like, I couldn't do anything. I just had to like, I was bedridden for a couple months. Oh, yeah. I was even uh, um, looking at houses out there. I was like, I'm just going to do it now. Like I Why was not? just, I was so like <laughs> impulsive and bored at that time. So I was like, yeah, let me just go move across the country in the middle of like the most severe yeah. physical recovery ever. I'm sure that all of your doctors told you that that was a great idea. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> like maybe no major life choices right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, I watched from start to finish again last night, the, the E60, um, wow. man, first of all, we have done a little bit of TV and stuff for, uh, like ALS awareness. We did a, like a short segment on CBS Sunday morning. Um, it, the total segment was like, I think maybe 10 minutes long. And I think at least six of it were a couple of our friends who live in Chicago. Our segment of it was like three and a half minutes. And we spent eight hours filming <laughs> three and a half minutes. And so every time I was watching that E60, I was like, man, this is really well done. And man, Drew had to shoot a lot of B-roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. I think it, I like estimated after I was done, I was just trying to like sit back and think about all the time. And I think I estimated like 85 to 90 hours of film time. Wow. Like, well, not for me, like not all for me. For it was them, like for your family. family. My friend, the friend that was a part of it. Um, and then actually I didn't even think about like the two other people, like the, the psycho my psychologist and the other team at the interview. But yeah, like my sit down and like the main sit down interview for myself lasted six and a half hours itself. Oh, with Jeff? With Jeff, yeah. Wow. And then we did all the B-roll, like the workouts and driving and Mm -hmm. out in different areas like my high school and out in the desert um yeah and then my family yeah and then mm -hmm. they, they we're done and then they like we need some more so they came back like two weeks later mm -hmm. and we did some more stuff um so at that time it was it wasn't inconvenient at all for me because I was just physically like I was like I said I was pretty low-key so I didn't have any like responsibilities mm -hmm. at the time but yeah the amount like looking back like Cause now when I do like, like one of my things is like responsibilities and inconveniences, like really uh, like bother me sometimes. So mm -hmm. every once in a while I'll think back to that, that like process. I'm like, geez, I like, it's a good thing I was in that space because like I did so much work for like one, like not getting paid <laughs> from it. And two, like just the amount of like, like hours I went into oh, yeah. it, I was just like, yeah, let's do it. Like I, I understood it was like a really cool opportunity. So like, that's probably what was yeah my main focus but yeah like the amount of time like we spent we had to get like home footage like home videos and like old pictures mm -hmm. and all these mm -hmm. things like it was it was pretty much non-stop um yeah. like I said it was totally worth it yeah it's it's a lot it's a lot of work and I remember just even at the end of our day with it I was like nobody talk to me the rest of the day <laughs> leave me alone because yeah. yeah, it, was, it was a lot yeah I was exhausted like emotionally exhausted after the totally down interview because like the first day or two like first two days we did like a lot of the b-roll like the working out like the mm -hmm. all the other images but the, i think the third day is when i did my actual sit-down interview and i remember afterwards jeff and i got done and we were just like we looked at each other we didn't even like say anything but we were like i think we just knew exactly what we were thinking like man we're exhausted and then i yeah. and then he had to keep on going he had a, he interviewed my one of my teammates that flew in the guy mm -hmm. that actually the, the guy that was a part of it ryan rua he's mm -hmm. the one that I, that's the town, uh, the guy that I would go visit. He's one of the He flew in for the okay. day. So Jeff had to like knock out another like 
intense, like two or three hours with him after yeah. mine. I was just, I came in my guest bedroom and I was just like, like a zombie on my couch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No kidding. It's, it's, uh, was that really the first time that you had gone through that, the, all of it in detail too? Yeah. 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 So that's honestly, that's, what's kind of like, it's, it's almost like at this point, it's kind of like hard to watch now because that was like such, like such, so fresh. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't like voiced it and like really, really talked about like my reflections and the reasonings. And it's just kind of like at that time, I was just talking about my like immediate emotional well being, like how I was doing right then. Yeah. I didn't really like reflect too much on like why things happened or how I was before mm-hmm. with my family. So, like, I, w- I didn't, I wasn't able to articulate and like reflect as clearly as I am now. Mm-hmm. So like when I watch it, I like it, like I said, it's kind of hard because I'm not able to like clearly explain what I was feeling and how I was feeling yeah. the way I am now. Cause my you were still kind of like in the trauma, right? Like you were still right. really and it. I think it's hard to know in those situations until afterward, like when, when the trauma part of it kind of ebbs and you can have that perspective. It's, it's really kind of impossible when you're in it to know right. that you're still in it, in the thick of it. Yeah. yeah. And I just, since I've done it, since it's like came out, I've obviously done a lot of interviews and podcasts. So just like doing a lot of talking, I've basically practiced. And like each time I, I talk about it, my reflections get like a little more clear and I'm able mm-hmm. to like explain things better and even like understand things myself. They're like, Oh, maybe when I explained it that first time, that's not exactly how it was or whatever. Like, so sometimes when I watch it, I'm like, dang, I could have, I could have touched on this a little bit more clearly. And it might've related, um, hit home a little bit more with even more people, but, um, not saying like, I don't watch it because I definitely Mm -hmm. every once in a while I'll watch it because it, it it like kind of lifts me up. Oh, totally. I think sometimes I go back and read things I wrote, like in my most desperate moments to kind of remind myself like where I've been and also that it will get better. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's strange because I don't generally like to take in my own work. Um, you know, I think you, you saying going back and saying, Oh, dang, I could have done that. Like, well, that's like our first little glimpse into (laughs) Drew's perfectionism. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I can relate to that totally. Like it's, I'll have an, I'll have a conversation with somebody for the podcast and I'll know like their story is very powerful. And that's really that's really what the episode is about. And I'll be like, Oh my God, why did I say that one thing? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. It's tough. It's tough finding that balance of like total forgiveness and grace and like wanting to get better and like finding yes. that, I call it like the sweet spot, like mm-hmm. always the opposite end of the spectrums on whatever um, emotional emotions or characteristics and find the sweet spot between them. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. super hard because when I give myself grace, sometimes I feel like I'm just being complacent. So that means like, no, I need to, I need to get better. And then when I, when I go on that end, it's like, all right, I'm trying to control things way too much. So let me find this middle ground. <laughs> it is very, very hard. And I think for me, one of the things that I've had to realize is like, this is not something that I'm going to figure out. <laughs> like, this is yeah. going to be a lifelong thing that I deal with how hard I am on myself. And I'm going to like wake up in the middle of the night and have some, like something's going to pop in my head and I'm going to have to tell myself you literally cannot do anything about this right now. Go back to sleep. (laughs) It's so hard. Yeah. Like surrendering the idea that you're not going to know everything at at every time. Like, like, and I I saw a thing, like it was almost like a meme. I think on social media, it's like the moment you realize 
you don't know everything and like the, the chart that and after like you realize that on the bottom you don't know everything the chart skyrockets on the and on the, the top part it's saying like you learn way more so it's like the moment you like realize you don't know everything it like opens your mind to like learning and, and like yeah. opening accepting things a little bit more easy instead of like no, I, I need to get it done. I need to get it done. Yeah. It's like, you're just so blocked up. And like, yes. And you become it, defensive because you're like, well, yeah. I, should, I know that I know about this. I know about this. Right. Yeah. But really <laughs> you're like, I know nothing. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. what I find. Like when I'm in those, I've noticed that I get like super controlling and super defensive mm-hmm. um, about things. And that's when I realized like, okay, I'm trying a little too hard to be like the superhero, like like Gandhi type thing. Like I got it all figured out. I needed to kind of just step back and let myself just be. Yeah. Just let yourself be the person who is every day waking up and trying to do it just like a little bit better than they did the day before or accepting that maybe today isn't going to be as good as yesterday or whatever. Right. That is, that's hard. It's all, ugh, man, I think we might be kindred spirits. True. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel you all, all of what you're saying. So <laughs> Well, I think that the best way to do this is to kind of begin at the beginning. And one thing that I actually found really interesting that you already just said was that when you watch that E60 back, you realize at that point, you didn't have a lot of time to have reflected on the parts of your life that got you to April 16th, 2020, right? And I wonder if you can just start by kind of talking about that, about your childhood. I know in the documentary, you mentioned that a pretty you know, pivotal point in your young life was when your parents got divorced. Um, and so I just wonder if you can talk about now the perspective that you've gained on sort of what, what, what got you to, to that day. Yeah. The, the, my parents divorce, um, definitely played a huge role in shaping my, my relationship, like my understanding with myself and just like life, basically, I, I kind of just, I, obviously as a kid, you don't realize it's happening, but like looking back, um, I'm able to realize that that caused a lot of trauma and a lot of disrupt and a lot of discomfort between me and my relationships with my, my family members. Um, sorry, how old were you when your parents got divorced? So they got, they officially got divorced when I was nine. Um, but for years before that, um, there was a couple of separations. Um, dad moved out for an, a time, uh, a period of time and then moved back in. Um, but like I said, for years before that, and most of my young childhood, there was always like, just kind of like that untalked about tension between my parents and just kind of like, I think everyone was aware that they weren't necessarily right for each other. Mm. Uh, but they were just trying to make it work for our family mm-hmm. and they did a pretty good job with it. Honestly, like when I talk about these things, sometimes it comes off as like my, my, my family sucked and like yeah. everyone was so mean to each other, but like they, they did so much for us, obviously. And they tried their best to provide for us. And they really, like I said, they did a good job, but there's just that always, there was also always that disconnect between them, um, which kind of trickled down into us. And we, mm-hmm. I think my, my siblings and I just sensed it. And since that happened for, a pretty um, extended amount of time in my young childhood up until I was nine. I think it just kind of like planted that seed that a lot of things are just, are kind of um, uneasy and like emotional things um, can kind of just be swept under the rug, which is what we did as a family, I think. Yeah. Which I think is pretty normal for like that. Right. For for people of our age. Exactly. And like I said, looking back, like I don't, 
blame them or anything because especially now as an adult, I realize how hard relationships are, how hard life is. So, um, it just, it, it, like I said, it it caused a lot of things just trickle down and, um, it caused a lot of like emotional, like we, we put things away, like I said, sweeping on the rugs, but, um, that when you do that, that caused a lot of when things got really overwhelming, it caused a lot of like emotional eruptions. And, um, I think our family, we just, like I said, we just tried our best to keep things under control, but obviously we weren't able to do that all the time. So our, we were just an emotional roller coaster, um, most of our lives. And my mom was really up and down. My dad was always, um, like we were, for the most part, I was living with my mom most of the time when I was younger. Um, so like, I looked at my dad as like a, an escape, like a safe place. Like I went, when things got crazy with hectic, my mom, I'd go to my dad and then like, there would be some kind of conversation or connection with them. And like, it was always a little ugly at first. So then I would go back to my mom and Mm. it was just always like back and forth and trying to choose a side who's right, who's wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And now, like I said, look, as an adult, looking back, I I wish I would have had a better understanding, which I don't blame myself for because how could I, but yeah, there's no right or wrong. It's just like, they were just trying their best. And sometimes they fell short. Sometimes they, they didn't. But um, like I said, it, it caused a lot of emotional scarring for me. And it was really hard for me to handle. And I, like I said, I, I was so overwhelmed as a kid. Like, like I said, in, in the documentary, I was always the kid that I was the most emotional one with everything within sports and school. I was always on top of the world or at the very bottom, like crying all the time, slamming things in baseball. Um, yeah. I was a big heart on the sleeve guy. And yeah. Um, it's, it's honestly, honestly, it's kind of hard to think about because it was like, so, so, so blatantly on each end of the spectrum mm-hmm. that it's like almost embarrassing, but you were a um, kid. yeah, I was a kid and I was totally, um, scarred from mm-hmm. the way things were going. I was thinking about that. Cause you mentioned that in the E60 and I was thinking about, um, my kid, my son is kind of like a, an, a hard on his sleep kind of a kid too. And he can have some big highs and lows and he's definitely a kid who will, slams hockey stick on the ice, uh, a shift doesn't go the way he wanted or throw his batting helmet down after he's, you know, struck out or whatever. And I was thinking about how we kind of, I think that people, uh, parents and coaches and everybody can kind of almost like glorify that response because it shows that the kid cares. And, right. and I wondered your kind of take on that. And, and if you would see that in a different way, because, um, I think it's a really tricky thing because you want people to show that they're passionate and that they, then that they care. But at the same time, like those huge swings for kids, for anybody, um, but for kids, we, I don't think it's probably a, something that we should be saying, Oh yeah, look at how much they care, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting take. Cause I, I've definitely been in that space where I, like there was even times throughout my career where like, I wasn't necessarily feeling like slamming something but my play had gotten so bad for so like such a consistent amount of time. Where I was like, okay, if I don't act like something's wrong, people might think I don't mm. like, I don't care. Like maybe I should put on a little act to make, mm. to make people realize like, I really, I really do care inside. But yeah. it was like, I would kind of like uh, manufacture a, mm-hmm. a snap every once in a while mm. um, because of that, like idea of glorifying it. But yeah. uh, I don't know. I think it's also interesting too, because at times I feel like when I try to hold it in, would try to hold it in so much that it would like, again, it's like kind of like sweeping things on the rug. So like yeah. there was, again, it's like finding that sweet spot in yeah. the middle ground thing because 
I, I felt like if I held it in too much, then I would like, I would, I would be irritable. And then I would like take it home with me and I would be like mm-hmm. short with, with Diana. I'd be short with my family members. Like, mm-hmm. um, I was, I wasn't, I wouldn't be able to like really be myself because I was like harboring that, mm-hmm. that like aggression. Um, but at the same time, if I do it after every out, obviously that's not going to be good either. So, um, I think it's like about understanding the situation and like after just one for me, for baseball comparison or example, after like one strikeout in the second inning, it's not needed. But if you mm-hmm. make a big mistake, it's like, I think it's a little more understood with, within your teammates and your coaches. Like, okay, that, that was a really yeah. costly mistake. Maybe, maybe we can give him his space for a second um, and let him come back. And it's like finding that separator because I don't think it's important to glorify that that's passion because I think that's more um, impulsivity and not mm-hmm. necessarily like the actual passion. You can show mm-hmm. passion um, in other ways. Um, I think one of my coaches one time told me play with emotion, but don't be emotional. Mm-hmm. And like, for some reason, like that little spin of those two letters at the end of it, for some reason really hit home with me because you can play with emotion and show it through passion and in right. other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, like I said, you can find that sweet spot between yeah. slamming all the time and not slamming at all because, yeah. uh, most people, if, you, if you're not slamming all the time, mm-hmm. it's probably because you're holding something in yeah. or you're just, so well with like so well um like regulated yeah regulated that you're able to like process things which and no one is at 10 or whatever you know no one is at that age and so it's more probably about yeah it's probably about like does the reaction match the situation kind of a deal like this was an important situation and so you get it so i can see that yeah that that's a good point how how old were you when you started playing baseball um, I want to say five or six. Okay. I don't even know exactly, but I was just yeah. always, my brother started yes. young. And You're the youngest, always, right? In your family? Right. Yep. So I was just always following his footsteps. So I was mm-hmm. always at the field, mm-hmm. either with my practice. And for most of my childhood, I was my brother's team's bad boy. So I would always go to his practice with him. Mm-hmm. And then I go to my practice and I was just always at the baseball field. How yeah. old were you when when people around you and, and your, you yourself started to kind of think you also might be able to get drafted. You were, you weren't just good for high school. You weren't just good for college. Like you were, you were potentially going to be a, a you know professional baseball player. Yeah, it was uh, probably about halfway through or to, towards the end of my junior year of high school. Okay. So I was a very late bloomer. So my freshman year, I was miniature. Then sophomore year, I was really small. And then I even got hurt in the basketball season before baseball started. Um, So I didn't even play until like playoffs of sophomore. So I first freshman, sophomore, I wasn't even, I didn't even play pretty much. And then my junior year, in between those sophomore and junior year, I hit a growth spurt. Um, I I picked up like um, physical training, like took it very serious. So I Mm -hmm. was gaining some muscle and strength, whatever. So, um, and then I put together a really good season my junior year. And then it was like, all of a sudden every all the attention happens like who is this guy this guy out of nowhere because mm. at, at that time when i was in high school i think that was like right when that was when things were like really starting to get into like scout ball and travel ball and, and like showcases and things people were doing things like every weekend mm. but i wasn't because i was i was unknown i was small so like since i wasn't at all the showcase and stuff everyone's just like who is this guy like, where did you come from so <laughs> kind of like late bloom kind of like yeah out of nowhere became um, a prospect. And then even still, I didn't do too much like showcases or anything, but I had a ton of attention from pro scouts because I was like, 
I was more raw. So like mm-hmm. colleges weren't as interested because I still had some time. Like I needed to do some developing like physically. Mm-hmm. So I had more attention actually from mm-hmm. professional organizations than I did um, colleges, but it was cool. It was a, it was a whirlwind for like okay. a year, a year straight. It was like so much attention, like mm-hmm. scouts coming over to my house, meeting me and my dad and like watching me practice and doing like the littlest things mm-hmm. to like get a little tell on the kind of person I was. So yeah. it was, it was really fun. Do you remember when you started to like really put a lot of pressure on yourself with baseball and when that sort of like negative self-talk kind of started to come into play? Yeah, honestly, like my whole life, life. from five (laughs) years old on (laughs) pretty much. I, I think I, I think the pressure started coming like once I got to like, around 12 ish. But even before then, like, I don't know if it was pressure putting myself, but it was like, I always had this really bad sense of embarrassment when I didn't do well. And like, mm. I kind of turned into like a sympathy thing where I would like, want people to feel bad for me or something that I did so bad, like I would cry or like fake an injury or something when I was really I can even when we were going through our home videos for, to get mm-hmm. together for the E60. I remember watching when I was in like, coach pitch, which is like seven or eight years old. Mm-hmm. and like I got out and I went I was like limping onto the field the next inning and like you if you pay attention like my limp ch- chained from one leg to the other and I was just like and I it's funny because I actually like actually remember that setup like it brought me back and I was able to like remember like oh my gosh that's embarrassing because I do remember like saying oh I, I don't want to play let me fake an in or whatever it was like so yeah. weird um but like the pressure side of like feeling like really like less about myself was probably once we started like going, like I said, probably around the age 11, 12 range, because I was on some really good teams, like nationally recognized. And we even went to, um, we played on like ESPN a couple of times. So like our team was really good. And I felt like I was always like the middle of the pack player where I was, I wasn't like as good of our, as our best players, but I was like a little bit better than our worst. Um, but I, I just always felt like I was kind of falling short because I wasn't the best player. Yeah. And that was going to say, just say was that like, that was not just a baseball thing for you. Like you were doing that in all areas of your life, right? Feeling like who you were outwardly was not what was happening inside. hundred percent. Yeah. I did it every aspect of my life, like schooling with intelligence. Like if someone got better grades than me, I was, that meant I was dumb. Mm -hmm. Um, if someone had was funnier in like our social setting, I was like, dang, that, that person's better than me. Like it was just, I, I twisted everything into like finding a way to make it seem like I was lesser than somebody, which is like, obviously so detrimental. Yeah. Have you, do you, you probably are familiar now with the saying comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I think of that one a lot myself too. It's, it's just not good. Right. It's, it's a hard, but it's a lesson that if you don't, if you don't know how to express it to somebody, and if you're not in the position where like you're saying with your family, right. Which I don't think is different than a lot of families. Yes, everybody loves each other. Everybody's trying, but nobody's talking about what's happening. And then you're going through those periods, right? Where it's like suppression, suppression, explosion, right? right? Rather than let's deal with this as it comes. It's like eventually the lid blows. Right. Yeah. That's I haven't heard that word that way before. And I like that because that's exactly what I 
I've done throughout my life. And I still find myself doing every once in a while is just suppress, suppress and explosion. Um, so that's why, like, I think the work that I'm doing now, like the messages I'm spreading is like, I don't know. I think I worry at one time of like talking is just like stretching for big life adversity. Like when mm-hmm. you compare it to like stretching for a workout that you warm up to be able to handle the stress that you put your body through. Um, so like for me, like therapy or just talking to somebody every mm-hmm. once in a while, like I go into a session and it's like, I don't feel like I necessarily need it right away, but it's preventative work. And I feel like every time I come out of it, I feel better about my understanding with myself or better about what I'm going through at the time. And then, like I said, I feel like it prepares me more for when like real adversity hits, or if I go through like my low, low mood phases that, that I go still go through every once in a while. So mm-hmm. like, for like a fun word spins, like talking and, and, and not suppressing is kind of like stretching for yeah. emotional adversity. Yeah, that's so true. I think that's, yeah, it's like practice. It's like, just like practice for how to do things. Like you go through video in practice, you watch what you did so that you can change it and do better. If you talk about what you did and how you felt, then maybe you can change it and do better. Right. Exactly. So how long so you were drafted in the fourth round, right? By Texas. Yeah. Yeah. And how many years did you spend in the minor leagues? Like in total, you so, um, before, before I made my debut, I spent seven full seasons. And then once I made my debut, I was up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, I played for a total of like with this year, 11 and a half seasons. And I got just over a year of service time in the major league. So mm-hmm. I spent just under 10 years of minor league baseball. I think, I think people better understand now, but still don't really understand how not glamorous minor league baseball is when I was covering the twins, um, like early on when I was covering the twins, Tori Hunter was still their center fielder. And I remember him telling this story about how he would, cause he grew up very poor and you don't make any money. There's like nothing glamorous about minor league baseball, not the paychecks, not the travel, not the clubhouses, not the food, nothing about it is glamorous. And for some players, if they didn't have a lot of family support, it was really, really difficult to just get by. And I remember um, Tori telling this story about how like his first year in the minors, he would, there would be like a, uh, like the meal line. Right. And he would go through the meal line and then he would like put a backwards hat on and change his shirt inside out and like put on sunglasses. And so he could go back through the meal line and get a second meal because he, that was like all he was going to be able to eat that day. Um, so I think that people don't really understand how hard minor league baseball can be. And I wonder, I wonder if you can talk about that, that side of it and what, how, not only how difficult it can be for, cause I know I've read, I think in Jeff's story, Jeff Passon's story about you, he wrote some things similar, like you didn't have a collared shirt. You didn't know that you like there, you didn't, you didn't come there with all sorts of financial support either. Um, and I just wonder if you could kind of share with people, like what is minor league baseball really like? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because for me, I, I, I was able to live a little more comfortably than most because I, I signed in the fourth round. So yeah. my signing bonus cushioned me through the first four years of my, of minor league ball, which at that time I was 18 to 22 years old. I didn't yeah. even know what it was. I didn't even know what life was. I was just like growing up in the minor league. So I was like, honestly, for me, I kind of embraced it in a good way. I think because I was so young that I was like, that's all I knew. So I didn't know any different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think coming from home, like 
like I said, my parents did a really good job of helping us and doing what they could. Um, but since I, we grew up a little, um, on the poorer side, mm-hmm. I think I was a little bit used to it, but, um, that being said, like when I look back at the things that like the experiences and the setups and situations we were in, it's just like, I don't think I would ever go through that again, but mm-hmm. at the same time, that's not to discredit like all the cool things that happened as a minor league, like all the relationships I've had and, totally. and the they're like unmatched and I would definitely do it again. But, um, it's tough. Like, it's like you said, it's, I think my first paycheck, um, in Arizona, if I can remember, it was like under $80 for two weeks. Um, it was just insane. Like to think about, and so many people are, are starting to talk about it and like shine light. Like you mentioned, like people are starting to learn more about it. And like I said, it's not to just bash on it over and over yeah. because they are giving us an opportunity, but, um, it is a very tough lifestyle. I mean, mm-hmm. we have in minor league baseball, you get like one off day every 38 days or something mm-hmm. crazy, like 35 to 40 days. You're traveling through bus through night, going at getting to the field around one, staying there until 11, like crazy long days with putting a lot of physical effort. Um, and then putting on top of the performance side of everything relies on a performance that you don't have as much control over as you would like. Mm-hmm. So the stress factor of it is insane um and then yeah like you said the the food situation mm-hmm. is pretty it's pretty insane um like i said when i think back i'm like dang I, it's a good thing i didn't know anything about dieting because i would have been so upset <laughs> because now when i i take dieting very seriously but never once in a while i think back to like how much like taco bell i used to eat and how much like dollar menus i used to go crush yeah. Mm-hmm. peanut butter and jellies and like cheetos before games to help me go prepare to be, do like a really high yeah. intensity um um effort so yeah. that stuff's really tough and like like you mentioned some people come out of there with like there's some people that sign out of high school or college that don't get a signing bonus or don't have a supportive family and they're legitimately yeah. borderline homeless mm-hmm. living to try to get to that to that 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 ultimate goal. Um, I think that's something that for me might've even just kind of like blinded me or like naively just like, yeah, it doesn't matter what I'm, what my situation right now, eventually I'm going to be in the big leagues. Mm -hmm. I'll be comfortable, be able to take care of myself, take care of my family. Like, so it didn't even really matter at certain points. Um, but once I started running out of my signing bonus around year four, um, that really took a toll on my like psychological Mm -hmm. understanding of what I was going through. Um, and it's tough. Like you said, like I said, I just, I was so critical of like how I was actually playing and performing that any other life stressor was just so magnified. And I just like, mm-hmm. like I said, I, I, I did everything in a sweeping on the rug way. Like I, if I had any kind of like personal conflict, I would for sure not let anyone know about it because mm-hmm. I didn't want to, it was already a tough situation and I didn't want to be inconvenienced, whatever. I, I never, I never talked to anyone, any, anything deeper than like movie quotes, um, <laughs> quoting like funny things or just like looking at funny images, talking at that time, like talking about girls, whatever. Like it was the most superficial conversation being had. And I just wanted, I just didn't want to even like think about it anymore throughout my day. So I, mm-hmm. I constantly, um, swept things on the rug. And I think that's because not to get too off topic, but like, because baseball in minor leagues was like so challenging that I just didn't even know what I was really doing. Well, it's not like you were in any environments where you were seeing 
like modeled in front of you, people talking about how they were doing, like how they were feeling. If you were talking about how you were doing, it was like, well, I have a, my shoulder is sore or whatever, you know, it's like injuries, like it's physically how you're doing. And I mean, did you ever, did anybody ever talk about, did you ever see anybody talking about when you're growing up, how they were feeling about their feelings? There was a couple of times throughout my childhood when things got like really uncomfortable and hectic between our family. Like my mom would, um, would take me with her to therapy sessions every once in a while. So like, I kind of knew therapy settings and I knew about talking, but as a kid and like being so like annoyed with like the the reason why we're there is because things are so severe and so extreme that like, I was just like, no, I don't want to do this. Like, this is so uncomfortable. So I was like, so closed off that like my experience with those things were, were negative. It's only when when things are really bad. So like, why would I want to talk about those things? So like, emotional conversations for me always seemed like they were talking about negative things. So I always try to avoid them because like the basis wasn't, wasn't like growth and like understanding. It was like, things are so bad. We have to fix this. Like, this is broken. This is horrible. Don't want to be like this. So to do that, you have to talk. And so like my, my perception of talking was only was for when things were only horrible. Um, so I would try to yeah. avoid that at all costs. And, I think like thinking back to some of my earlier days in the minor leagues, like when I was a second year, my second year of pro ball, I, I hit like 160, which is like horrible. I was one of the worst players in the league. Um, so I was, and I was just 18, <clears throat> 18 turned 19. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was totally immature still. And like, as a, as a man and as in, and emotionally, I was so mature. So I was like spending a ton of time, like sitting in the dugout for games, crying and, <clears throat> like teammates and, and coaches caught on that I was like doing I was struggling pretty badly internally um and I, I remember a couple of coaches would call me up call me off to side either before or after a game and just like just talk to me and in the moment I didn't realize like that what was happening like I said that was a really beautiful thing what they were doing and it was yeah. it was kind of a good step that I was that they were making me do but again I was just like it's because things are so bad so I would I, f- I always feel better afterwards because it always led to just an emotional release where I was just like bawling the whole time when I was talking to them. Mm. But at the same time, I had that idea that crying is a sign of weakness and like mm. it's embarrassing as a man to cry in front of other people. So I, although I felt better, like kind of like cleansed afterwards, I would go home and be like, Oh my God, I can't believe you cried in front of the coaches. Like they're going to think that you're not able to handle this lifestyle. So mm. like it was, it was interesting because like, to answer your question, there was times where like talking was accepted and like in, in, encouraged, mm-hmm. but it always like turned to me thinking like, gosh, like you just see things so extreme and like, you're, you're so, like, you're so distraught and so like out of control of yourself that it's, uh, yeah, it's probably not going to be a good look for the organization or for the people around you. They might think that you're, um, not really put together. So I, I would always like kind of bash myself afterwards. So. Right. So the negative self-talk, <laughs> even though, even though you may have felt a bit better from the release of somebody saying, Hey, I'm here for you. You know, do you want to talk about what's going on afterward? <laughs> your perception was that that was just you showing how the lack of control you had over your own emotions. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 It was tough. <laughs> yeah. That's, That's a vicious though, because- cycle. <laughs> 
even before my incident, like I was aware that those, so that season specifically, and then another season, 2014, I also hit under 200. It was one of the worst players. Um, and once I got through those two seasons, like creeping into the big leagues. So like I said, before my incidents, when I was still like very rigid with like my thinking and stubbornness and hard on myself, there was a small part of me that understood that those two seasons actually taught me more than the seasons that I went out and did well. Um, so like, I kind of started like having this idea in the back of my mind that talking about like going through those, the hard times actually helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I just, it was so uncomfortable. I never wanted to go there. So I did, I did my best to avoid any kind of like any kind of sign that I was in that space again, because it was so uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until I got to like AAA in the big leagues that I was around like grown men that were able to like they they were mature and they it wasn't so like normal to like act like a child that I like really took a step forward with my maturity and like controlling myself a little bit more. But at the same time, I think I didn't do it in a way of like assessing it. So yes. I just I stopped like emotionally snapping so much, but I would go home and like think about it. And that's why I say like from earlier, like although I wasn't like showing it, I was harboring it inside. Yeah. And that's where I was resisting so hard that I was short with Diana. I was short with my family. I was, mm-hmm. I was super, super irritable because I was like trying to be so controlled that, uh, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. The suppression thing. Right. And that's all it was. Right. It wasn't that you had figured out <laughs> a healthy outlet and you didn't have tools for dealing with it. You had just gotten better at controlling your impulses. Didn't mean you weren't yeah. having the feelings. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so for you, therapy and talking was like, a sort of like desperately pathetic attempt to fix something instead of a way to heal. Yeah. That's yeah. a great, way to put it. like that was definitely my view. Like it was just an embarrassment. Like, Oh my gosh, like I'm so messed up that I need this help. I'm not able to do it myself. Um, yeah. Instead of like understanding nobody has to figure it out and we're all just mm-hmm. trying our best. And at times we need to lean on other people to help sort out what's going on inside of us. And so what year was it that you made, because your big league debut, you made the Rangers opening day roster, right? Out of spring training. What year was that? 2017. 2017. And your first big league hit was a home run. Like that's pretty incredible for whatever. Like you get to keep that memory forever. And I hope now you can look back on that and be like, that is mine. Nobody can take it from me. I did that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But you got sent down the next day. Yeah. And yeah. I mentioned this to you yesterday when we, we talked briefly before this about um, Naomi Osaka saying recently that, you know, she has, she's been very vocal, obviously tennis, the tennis star about um, her mental health and what she needs and taking some time off from tennis. And she said to her that winning isn't, hasn't been fun and that it feels like relief. And that really resonated with you. And I wondered if you could just kind of touch on how that, how you relate to that, uh, that statement. Yeah. Yeah. When you said that, like, I don't, I feel like I almost got goosebumps because it was like so well-worded and that's like what I was experiencing so much throughout my career. It was like, when I did well, it was like, I didn't get to, I didn't really, I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong, but like, it was just like a, a sigh of relief. Like I got to take a deep breath for a second, like, Oh, I did it. Like, I, okay, I'm good. But then it was like, 
boom, right away it was like, okay, what next? Like, let me move to the next thing and let, let me move to the next thing. And like, when things are wrong, I would sit there and analyze them and fixate on them and try to make them better. But when things went right, it was just like, okay. And then boom, it's like onto the next thing. It wasn't like, man, I, I, I'm so grateful for this accomplishment because I put so much work into it. I like sitting there and like fixating on the good too, along with the bad once in a while. Um, I wish I would have done a better job with that because I didn't. And like I said, like she said, the relief side of it was so like, so prominent in my, yeah. in my life because it was just like, okay, I got to take a second to like breathe because the work that I did allowed me to, to do well for a second. Yeah. And then, but it wasn't right, joy on to the next thing. Yeah. And I think it wasn't all like that. Um, yeah. I think one who watched me play baseball because I was like I said, I was, I wore my heart, my sleep. So I was always like acting a fool in the dugout, like cheering <laughs> people on. Like when I did well, I think I did it more. Like I tried to be more stoic and like act like it wasn't a surprise that I did well. <laughs> act like you've been there as they say in yeah, sports. <laughs> exactly. so I didn't want to make it seem like, gosh, if, I, if I'm freaking out for myself, people might think like, geez, does he not do this very often? But mm-hmm. um, I definitely had enjoyment from doing well and like, the lifestyle when I did achieve or when I did get to the big leagues, like I, I was enjoying it, but at the same time, like I always, I always have this thing of like voice in the back of my head that was always telling me like, you need to make sure you don't mess this up. Like do not, do not, I don't know, lose focus too much, even though looking back, I, I definitely was complacent, especially in the big leagues. Um, but yeah, like those, those words of just like success was a sigh of relief instead of enjoyment. Um, it was, it definitely hit home because I definitely did that. I was, I was totally just like able to take a really deep breath for a second and like feel good about myself. But then it was like, yeah, but do you remember that air you made two weeks ago that cost us the game? <laughs> yeah. Or you get sent down the next day. And so everything that you think you are building and achieving is, is now, okay, well, shit, I did that. And I got sent down. Like, what do I have to do? I mean, I think baseball God, baseball is such a game of failure. Like even the best players, you know, obviously fail way more than they succeed offensively. And for somebody who has this idea of perfection, it could be pretty just really debilitating. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that, again, like same thing with like the minor league grind of like the struggle with the, with my like ups and downs, the big leagues, I think I did a pretty good job of embracing it and knowing that that's just how it works for players who are in that phase of their career. Um, with baseball, we call them options. You have three years of being able to be sent up and down as yeah. many times as you want. So I think I did, had a pretty good understanding. Like that's just the business side of it. And like, it's not comfortable and it like didn't make me feel good. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I just kind of knew that that's how it was. But at the same time, I was always like, looking around, like doing the comparison thing again, like looking around the league and seeing players that I thought I was out, outperforming or have better, um, I don't know, better tools, or whatever. I'm like, dang, that guy's getting to play every day. Like why, why, why not me? Or just mm-hmm. like you play the GM role in your head, like nonstop. And you're just like, mm-hmm. I feel like I should be there over this guy. Or I feel like I, I like whatever, <laughs> whatever it may be. So mm-hmm. you're just like always thinking about things. I feel like in every sport, you're always, it, it can get very easy to try to think about things that you have no control over. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, like I said, just fixate on all the, all the things that might be going wrong or might not be going the way you want them. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's like, like I said, you don't have control over it. So I don't say this, I like, I've switched that, like flipped that switch and able to do it because I still have trouble, but like, why would we 
why would we just not stop thinking about things we can't control when we can spend more time thinking about even though I got sent down, like I got to hit a home run in Yankee Stadium and impact the game. And like actually we like that was a game winning hit technically. Um so like if I could have found more time to like think of think on that instead of all the time I thought about how I'm not where I want to be or all these things. So yeah. Um it's tough. Like I said, it's not something that's easy to do, but practicing it make would would make it happen a little more often. Yeah. Yeah. So you can fast forward a bit to to like the let's say the 2019-2020 season. So well, I guess you would have been home, right? Because I'm thinking the pandemic started like right really right when spring training should have been starting, right? You'd been hurt the year before that, correct? You'd hurt your elbow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was supposed to be a season for you to come back from that injury. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Diana a few times and Diana's your, yours are high school sweethearts, right? You were. Yeah. Yeah. And well, we weren't, we, so it's a pretty funny story. Like we were the same grade, um, had the same friends, but we never actually met each other until like the third to last day of high school oh. when we were like signing yearbooks. I like asked one of her friends who was like my friend's best friend. So I was around her. So I asked her to sign the yearbook and then Diana was sitting right next to her. And I, I didn't want to be rude and just grab my yearbook and walk away. So I was like, Hey, do you want to sign my yearbook? And it's funny, like we wore it as like the, that day's version of sliding the DMS uh, <laughs> the, I, yearbook. She wrote like, yeah, you're a cutie and like put her number or something. I was like, dang, who is this? <laughs> and then from then we like always were flirting and always talking. So we weren't high school sweethearts, but we met each other in high okay. school and we've been We've been going on and off and strong um, since like yeah. 2011. Okay, and so that and that that year that you hurt your elbow is that the year that you guys got engaged? Yeah. So before the yeah, so January of 2019, I proposed. Mm-hmm. Went to the season with the Cardinals, new team. Um, had my injury. Had just kind of a challenging season overall, mm-hmm. um, and that's when things like really started to magnify and certainly going down a path of a lot of, um, uncomfortable and really toxic thoughts. What do you think? And maybe you don't know, but like you'd been dealing with this stuff in to some degree, these, this negative self-talk, these sort of feelings of worthlessness, um, for a long time, obviously, since you were a little kid for really as long as you can remember, right. You've kind of had this, that voice in your head. What do you think? Do you think that there was anything a culmination of things that happened for you that year that really sort of pushed it to an extreme. Yeah. I mean, and like the broad, like, like the broad idea of it was the, like the fear of my career coming to an end. Um, I was out of options. So I was afraid of daily opportunity was going to happen. So in turn, um, like a team wouldn't want to pay minor league player, as much as I would need to be paid to play. So I thought my career was getting close to the end. And I just like seeing the trajectory of other players careers. And again, comparing like I might be going down that road. So I was afraid my career was coming to an end. Um, I was really questioning myself with Diana and considering calling off the wedding, which I eventually did. And then the pandemic. So those three things all within like six, seven months, like really intensifying um, really just brought out the worst in, in my self-talk habits and like 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 you mentioned it just kind of like magnified what was already happening over the years and i mean i definitely and when i say that 
over the years, it wasn't like I was always like that. Like I said, I, I was able to take yeah. time and like, like seriously enjoy what I was doing in my life, like friends, hangouts and like the the time I spent at the field with my teammates and coaches and, and things like that. Like I, I genuinely enjoyed those things. It was the problem was when I would go home and like, if I didn't like the way I said something to somebody or didn't like the way I acted about something, I would just crush myself. Um, so like the culmination of just having those um, detrimental habits um, eventually caught up to me when things got like my life adversity got like serious, like really uncomfortable, which unfortunately a lot of people's did with the pandemic. Um, like I said, just kind of magnified a lot of things that we as a society didn't really want mm -hmm. to deal with. So, yeah. What do you think? Um, I know you mentioned in the E60, like a few things about this, but I wondered what do you think ultimately kind of led you to pull away from Diana? Um, just the, I like this feeling that we weren't right for each other because of the things that I was doing. I, anytime we had like, again, like I would, I would turn things into so much bigger than they were. So like anytime we had like a little disagreement on something or like we didn't see things perfectly or we didn't do something the exact same way, I would just say like, I would just take it as like, that's a sign that we're not right for each other. Like our love languages are different. So that means, that means we need to be different. Like we need to go our separate ways. Um, I felt like I was kind of like, I was so on and off with her, like throughout my mind career. Cause I was just always so confused on like what needed to happen. What, so I thought that was like ruining her life with all the times I uh, left her for a, a amount of time. So I just felt like I was responsible for this other person's emotional well-being that I was negatively influencing that I just, I felt so guilty. So I was like, this person would just be better off without me. Like I can't, I can't ruin this person's life any, any longer. Um, and again, I thought like every little disagreement was a sign that we weren't right for each other. When, as I've learned, that's just kind of the way life is like, I'm going to have just, I'm not going to see everything eye to eye with every single person I come across. So, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, like I said, I, I focus more on that than all the beautiful things that she did for me mm -hmm. and the things that we were able to experience together. Mm -hmm. So it was tough. And that, that's like, that was the, the main reason why I started therapy in the, that off season. But again, like I was going to therapy, but I wasn't really, I was seeking help, but I wasn't asking for help because I would just go into these sessions and, and basically just vent about what happened for the week and, and, and talk about what either I did that annoyed Diana or what Diana did that annoyed me or just like something that gave me a like inconvenience throughout the week and just like vent and like feel good for a second. And then once I left, like an hour later, I was doing exact, exactly. Exact well, nothing thing. changed, nothing. Yeah, there was, was no resolution. There was no solution, nothing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> leading up to, uh, April 16th, you had, you did not have Diana in your life anymore, who obviously was somebody that had been a strong support for you. Um, and you weren't able to really, you weren't really seeing anybody because you lived by yourself. And so with the pandemic, you had been kind of by yourself for like the better part of a month. Right. Yeah. And as that time went on, you, as that month wore on, you slipped further and further into into this, into this really scary place. And, and I wonder, you know, you, you already mentioned, like, it wasn't like you were always a miserable kid. You're, you know, you had 
problems and you had issues and you had anxiety and some social anxiety and and you had negative self-talk. And I think we can all relate to those things to an extent. And then at some point it became so detrimental. And when do you think you first had suicidal thoughts? Yeah, I think that a a concrete suicidal thought happened um, a a couple of weeks before I called off the wedding with Diana because I was like knowing that this was just going to crush her. I was like, maybe if I just did this instead of having to try it, like, like do this to her, uh, maybe it would be easier. Um, So I think that was the first time I really thought about it. And then pretty much the moment after I did it, like the the next couple of days, there was like a, I think a four or five day span in between calling off the wedding and leaving for spring training that like Diana and I are actually still like living together. Um, so it was a really uncomfortable setting. Um, so those four days I thought about it a lot. And then on the drive to Arizona for spring training, I think that's when I like actually started like coming up with plans or like a, a way that I could actually do it. Um, so my first thought was, like I said, a couple of weeks before, mm-hmm. um, but it's interesting because this, like, not to say that it makes it okay, but I think, I think a lot of people have passive suicidal thoughts and I want people to realize like, it's okay. And I think that's, that's another sign to talk about things with other people, because mm. I say that in a way, because like every once in a while throughout my life, like way before my incident. And, and just, like I said, coming up, I, there was times where I was just like questioning, like, what is life? Like, is this, is this really worth it? Like, is this mm-hmm. all this stuff really worth all this stress and negative feelings I feel at times. Mm-hmm. And then like, at sometimes I would, I would vision like when I'm, if I was driving on the freeway, I would envision like, if I just let off, but took my hands off the wheel and just saw what happened. Like mm-hmm. those passive suicidal thoughts happened not very often, but I would say a handful of times throughout just throughout my life leading up to that. Um, and I think that that's a, obviously a sign that, and I, like I said, I think, I think a good amount of people have that. And I think it's a normal thing to question life sometimes, because again, it's such a hard thing to, to deal with, but mm-hmm. um, I just want, I think it's a good opportunity to like let people know that that's normal and it's okay to have those th- feelings and maybe just take it as a sign to ask people around you what you think those, those mean and why those are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but to get back to the question, I think the first like real concrete thought of like suicide ideation was probably the two or three weeks leading up to, cause I was working out. I, 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 I when I want to get my feelings out, I do, I write, and I'm yeah. a pretty good writer with my, when I like let things out. So I was working on a note to Diana to try to explain things in a clearer way, because I knew if I would have just like tried to say things from the heart, it would have got super mixed up. So as I was right, like working on that note or working on those, the, the point of topics, um, a couple of times it came up, like maybe I can just, um, end my life instead of doing this. So <clears throat> the next part of this conversation is hard. And, and, and you and I talked about how to approach it yesterday, because I think it's such a hard thing to say, we need to talk about these things and then say, but how do we talk about these things? We want to make sure that when we're talking about suicide and suicidal ideations and, and suicide attempts, that we are very sensitive, obviously, um, because it can be very triggering for somebody who is in depression themselves. Um, so Drew's story is obviously very important. Um, and you know, you live 
to tell it. And that is why it is um, so impactful because a lot of people don't get that, that second chance. And so a big warning for people listening at this point, this next part of the conversation will be um, include details about suicide attempt, Drew's suicide attempt. And um, how, you know, I think how a person died by suicide or how a person attempted is generally left out of stories for a good reason, because nobody wants to kind of glorify those like worst moments of most desperate moments um, of somebody's existence. Uh, in this case, it's pretty unavoidable, I think, to talk, to not talk about um, what happened to Drew because he has, um, he had physical ramifications from his, um, from his suicide attempt. And so I think it's a very important part of his story. Um, so Drew is very well-versed in talking about this. Um, he's done it a lot and um, he's going to kind of take us through that day. Um, but a big warning, um, this is, you know, a trigger for people. And so just please um, take caution. And I just wonder, Drew, if you can just kind of tell us what happened on that day, which was April 16th, 2020. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's just important to know again, like this is not glorifying it or t- saying my life is where it's at because this happened. Um, I'm really confident in saying that all the things that I'm doing and the, the, messages I'm spreading could have 100% happened without this, this incident, without this happening. So, and that's uh, why you're telling the story, right? You're saying this, I could have solved this problem if I had asked for help. Exactly. Yeah. Solved it, not solved it, but you could have gotten that you could have gotten (laughs) to that, gotten through it in a different way. Exactly. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's important stuff and it's, Mm -hmm. it's important to talk about it because I know how bad it feels to be in that place. So I, I, if anyone is in that place listening, I don't want you to feel that way. And I can attest to all the work that I've done after my incident that if I would have done it before, it would have helped me avoid going down that road because again, I, I know what it feels like and I know how scary it is to be in a dark place. And I, and I also know the benefits of addressing these things in a, head on way. So when I say that's through therapy and through talking to my people. So, um, I don't want anyone in the world to feel the way I felt on April 16th. It's that's, that's my fuel, um, to do all this work because like I said, I just know how horrible it feels. And I, it's hard to talk about because especially recently with doing some, some work, um, I've experienced from people who either attempted or people who have been affected directly from some a family member or friend. And it just reminds me that there's unfortunately people in the world that feel that felt the way I did for them, the months leading up to April 16th. Um, but I think it really goes back to that, <clears throat> that month that, that the pandemic shut everything down. Um, <clears throat> and it really, really magnified on the day that I got home on March 13th from swim training, because that was the first time I walked into my house um, without Diana and my, and our dogs. So the first, I, I remember so vividly, I got home at nighttime, the house was dark, all the lights was out, um, opening the door to my garage and not hearing my dog's foot, footsteps running towards me to greet me at the door. And then obviously Diana not being there. <clears throat> I just remember vividly how lonely of a feeling that was and how scared I was. Um, because I, the, the uncertainty at that time in the whole world, but also the uncertainty I had was having myself of not knowing what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going through that month of 
taking the quarantining very serious because at that time baseball wasn't shut down completely yet. So I didn't want to be the first baseball player to test positive and mm. shut the whole thing down. So I didn't want, <clears throat> I didn't want to have that responsibility on me. So I, I was taking quarantine super serious. So I was, I wasn't allowing people over my house, but very rarely my sister came over a couple of times. My dad came over a couple of times. I think I had like <clears throat> two friends over throughout that whole month. But again, I, I knew where I was and I, I guess I kind of took that, that time to benefit, like to feed my, my, my want to isolate because at that time I was so lost and so, so broken that, um, I didn't want to be around anybody anyways, because I was feeling so bad about myself. Um, that led to a lot of drinking throughout that month. Um, just a lot of uncertainty. Like I said, I, I knew how bad I was doing. Um, I was missing Diana. I was missing my dogs. At one point, my sister and I worked with a foster to try to get a dog just to get some kind of like comfort with me, like some, like some attention, mm -hmm. um, that didn't work out. Obviously had a dog for like two or three weeks <clears throat> and my last attempt to <clears throat> basically help myself through that time was I found another dog that I was going to buy, like, like get another puppy and like help me like as an emotional service dog, basically, but like mm -hmm. have something to rely on me or provide for or whatever. Um, and that was like leading up to probably about two weeks before April 16th. And I think it was April 13th. Um, I went to go pick this dog up. And as I was in the room playing with this litter of puppies with the, the breeder, I just like had this realization. I was like, if I take this home and I end up doing what I want to do, then this poor dog will just be left by itself. And it's, it's always crazy to me to think about that because like, why was that puppy the turning point? Like, why couldn't I thought that way towards my, my dad or my mom? Mm. So like, I was going to be doing the same thing to my family members and the people that really cared about me, but why was it, why was the puppy the tipping point? Um, mm -hmm. So obviously throughout that time, when I got home, I had purchased a handgun and like I said, on April 13th, when I was seeing that dog, that's, I think that's when I really officially decided that I was going to do this. And, um, I left the puppy there, I drove home and I remember having that, it was a long drive home. And I remember having that, just that time with myself, like, do you realize what you just decided? And that, a part of me was so scared and so like heartbroken that I was officially deciding. Um, but a part of me kind of felt comforted because it was something that I, I for some reason I wanted so badly, but, um, it's just hard to, it's hard. Obviously it's hard to deal with because I'm sitting here talking about the worst day of my life over and over. But yeah. again, I think it gives me fuel because I don't want anyone to feel that way because I know how bad it feels. Mm -hmm. So the next three days I worked on a, a, a note that I was going to leave, leave behind my friends and family, um, trying my best to, for the first time in my life, explain what was going on inside of me to, to the people that cared about me. Because again, I lived so superficially so, so in such a superficial way with conversation that nobody realized like how, how deep I felt things and how much I cared about people because I, I just never let them know. So I tried, obviously I tried my best. And I think I even noted in there, like, I know this isn't just justifying what I'm about to do, but I just wanted to do my best to try to explain what was on my mind for the first time. Um, so throughout the day of April 16th, I was cleaning up. I, I wanted to leave things as 
as neat so that there was nothing to do for my family. Um, and I had planned to go somewhere else to attempt suicide because I didn't want someone that would have access to my house to find me because I didn't want to add another layer of trauma to an already traumatizing experience. But when I was away in my truck, I, I didn't, I just, I couldn't do it in the middle of nowhere. So I eventually drove home and around eight o'clock I pulled the trigger to my gun up against my temple. And for the next 20 hours, I roamed around my house waiting for the end to happen. And luckily, um, so grateful that around 3:45 PM the next day, um, I was still alive and I was in a place to able to dial 911 and call the ambulance to come try to save my life. And that's when, that's when the, the physical miracle happened. And then I would say even more emotional miracle happened because I'm just so grateful to be able to come out of that with wanting to use it in a way to help people not go down that road. Um, because I could have very easily gotten even more depressed that I had failed in my attempt and had to still be here, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of people who are suicidal. Um, so it's just a bunch of signs to me that I was meant to be doing this work before this and I could have avoided going down that road and still been doing this work because again, I know what it felt like without pulling the trigger. So I could have stopped and I could have reached out for help and I could have told someone I was having these thoughts and I could have leaned on the people that cared about me who would have reinforced that I'm needed in this world and they need me. And again, like I said, I, it's the biggest mistake and it's something that does not need to happen. And I can attest to all the work that's gone afterwards and that's happened afterwards, how, how beautiful it is to let yourself heal and to really take care of yourself to find that healing. Because again, I know how bad it feels to feel that way and how important it is to address it. Mm-hmm. You did not, I mean, not a lot of people survive what you survived and you did not come through it unscathed. So you lost an eye. Um, amazingly you did, your brain was not touched. Um, but you did lose an eye and you went through a lot. How many surgeries did you have to have? Um, four surgeries. Um, obviously total reconstruction of my, of the bone structure of my face. I had a spinal surgery at one point, uh, because I did have my brain didn't get hit, but there was fractures in my skull that was allowing cerebral spinal fluid leakage, which is a very serious matter. So yeah. um, the surgery to, to address that. Um, and eventually uh, my fourth surgery was a couple of weeks after my hospital stay, which eventually was the removal of my right eye that was tried to, that was attempted to be salvaged. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, um, it wasn't a successful attempt. Mm-hmm. So you were in the hospital for about three weeks, weren't you? Yeah, I was in the the hospital for my physical um, recovery for 14 days. And then I went to a a mental hospital for five days for my psychiatric um, assessment and, and planning. Mm -hmm. What that really was probably the first like real attempt at, at getting help. You'd been to therapy before, but like you said, it wasn't really it was more for you to kind of vent than to get tools to really address and, and, and try to help what was happening. And so I wondered what those five days were like for you. 
Yeah, those five days were really hard because I think the work that I was, not the work, but the kind of like the spiritual awakening that I had in the hospital um, during my physical recovery, um, it prepared me to go like go to my home in like a setting with my family and, and close circle of friends that were willing to support me. Um, I feel like I had this, the, the structure in place that I didn't need to go to the, the mental hospital, but again, like this is me looking back, realizing how important that was and how it is. It's just part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, in there, it was, it was a tough experience because I was, I felt like I was still such a high functioning person. Um, and I was, at, and at that time I still had trouble accepting the fact that I was, had depression, which is crazy to think about, but I thought it was just attested, like attributed to just how hard I was myself. And I didn't realize like that was depression in, in a sense. And I was like, I'm not depressed. I'm not sitting here sad and whatever, even though I was, but at that time I was like, so I wasn't able to accept it fully. So I didn't think I needed to be there basically because I, w- I witnessed people who were very troubled and it was like kind of, um, in a way it was disheartening because I wanted, I, in a sense, I wanted to help those people. I didn't want people to feel that way. I was wondering why, yeah. whatever I, I was, yeah. I wasn't as, as open, um, to being in a mental hospital as I was to wanting to just go home and, mm-hmm. and hug my family because mm-hmm. throughout the whole stay of the hospital was during COVID. So no one was actually able to come visit me. So I was, I wasn't able to physically like hug my family or Diana or whoever, like I wasn't able to, it was just a phone call. So I was so looking forward to going home to reconnect mm-hmm. that I, just wanted to get out of the mental hospital yeah. so badly because I, I I was obviously physically cleared to walk around again. That's mm-hmm. why I was able to leave the physical hospital. Um, so um, it was it was an interesting state because, like I said, I was still I was still battling myself and saying like I'm not yeah. depressed. I'm not mm-hmm. depressed. I just I'm hard on myself. I'm hard on myself, which in turn led to depression. So mm-hmm. um, in those days, it was tough, but looking back, it was something that just needed to happen. Um, and it's something that I've kind of continued because I, I, since that day, or since I got home, I've done weekly, weekly therapy sessions with either my, our team psychologist or my psychiatrist in Vegas mm-hmm. every week for the last, I don't even know how, like 18 months now. Yeah. And you felt like when you, you know, when you were in the hospital, when you, when you made that decision to call 911, which, you know, like to not gloss over the fact that that was like 20 hours of you not doing that. And then at some point you decided that, no, you did want help. Um, but that sort of awakening that you had at that moment to the fact that you wanted to be alive and you wanted to see your family and you loved your family and you didn't want to leave them. Um, I'm sure that contributed to the feeling that you were like, no, I get it now. I'm, I see, I'm seeing clearly, I don't need to go. Right. That kind of feeling. Right. right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I went through some, I went through a long phase where I thought I had, like, I, I, I had figured out, like I'm healed. I, I'm never going to have a negative thought again. How could I, after surviving something like that, Mm -hmm. like there was a long time, especially because when I was home, it was still quarantine. So I was literally just waiting for baseball. Well, at that time wasn't baseball wasn't happening, but I was still employed. So I was like waiting to figure out what my next step would be. So Mm-hmm. I was literally just sitting at home being taken care of by this amazing family that I, I have. Um, so there was, besides like the physical recovery, I didn't really have like life adversity stressors. So I was like, 
I got it. Like, this is going to be good. I'm going to be, I'm totally fine. How could I ever have a negative thought again? How can I ever view the world negatively when I got to experience the most high, high level of gratitude for surviving and just being, just bluntly being alive. So there was a definitely a moment where I was like, I don't need any help because um, I got, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, yeah. Isn't that, but that's not life. Like life doesn't stay in that pocket. Life gets hard again. Um, You have to keep existing in it um, and see, and then see, right. And then see how you respond. And so uh, when did you decide that you wanted to play baseball again? <laughs> yeah, that, that's one of the craziest thing about this, obviously too, is, um, I didn't, I went to say goodbye to baseball one day. Like I just, I was physically clear to like I want for the most part, I, for a while, I wasn't even able to bend at the waist. Um, eventually was able, eventually obviously got cleared. Um, and when I was able to do normal activity again, I, I messaged my, the people that usually help me every off season. I was like, Hey, let me, can I come in and hit a couple balls off the tee? Like they obviously knew what had happened. So it was like a big moment, but, um, I was, just I just wanted to go say goodbye to baseball in like an intimate way of just like feeling the bat hit the ball again and whatever. So I went and took a couple swings at the tee and like I actually hit it pretty good. And then I was like, you know, like my body feels terrible because I've been just laying around. So I'm so stiff. But like visually right. I felt all right. Like even though I have one less eye, like visually I, I mean I hit it. Let me see if I can like track some. So I had them like actually throw some to me. And again, like visually it felt fine. I was like Dang, let me come back tomorrow. Like, let me see if this is just like a fluke or something. So I went back in the day and I, I was able, I was making contact again, like visually things felt okay. And I was like, remember like think sitting there, like, I think I might even ask the people I was with, like, am I crazy to think that I could like play again? Mm-hmm. Um, and even at that point I was like, I was even had talks with my brother, like, because one of my skills in baseball is I had a really good arm. So at one point, even before I went to the cages, I, my brother and I were joking, like maybe my brother can just teach me how to be a pitcher and she's using my good arm. So like, since I'm not going to be able to hit with one eye, but like I said, the second day I was like, dang, my crazy. So I basically didn't stop showing up the rest of the, the rest of the fall and winter. And from like July 29th until the next year in April, I just completely committed to seeing how far I can get. Basically each day I like would do not each day, but there was like just different phases where I would test my limits. And I, I was kind of like subconsciously thinking like, all right, when am I going to re- reach my limit? Like, when am I going to not be able to like get a sign that this isn't going to happen? And then each time I did something, like I ran into a couple of hiccups. Like there was definitely times where I, would, I, I mean, I might've messaged Diana, like probably like over five times throughout the whole process. Like, all right, I think I'm done. Like I, I, it's time to hang them up. Let me go find a real job. Um, <laughs> but I like just kind of kept showing up and before I knew it, I was going to spring training and that, that wouldn't have happened without the giants, um, being so, they were such an integral part of this. They were so a part of my emotional recovery with support, um, before I was a a baseball player again, um, they were just there for me as a human being first. And then when I was, I would send them videos of me doing like the most basic things. Like, I think I might've even sent a video of me playing catch with with somebody i was like look you guys i'm playing catch as if that's like this big deal like obviously it was for me but like yeah i was just sending i was sending them videos of me doing it pretty much every step and then once things started getting like a little more complex of like 
hitting off a pitcher and doing like defensive intricate work um, in November, they called me and offered me with a contract to try to come to spring training and, and prove that I can play with one eye. Um, again, like that's just, it wouldn't have happened without this organization. And it's something like, and I know I kind of fast forward a little bit, but July 29th basically is when I thought about playing baseball again. And then I got to eventually achieve that by showing up to spring training in April, 2021. Wow. And you made the giants AAA team to start the season. And I think I mentioned to you yesterday that the first time I caught wind of your story was when you hit your first home run and it was like, Oh, a person like this is unprecedented, right? Like a person with one eye just hit a home run, uh, like a professional baseball player. This isn't like a gimmick. This is like, you were playing, you were, you, you were back in that sense. Right. And I wanted to, to track back a little bit before that though, there is a part I think, and this is, this says something I know, but the hardest part for me in the entire E60 was the part when you were at spring training and they had you mic'd. Yeah. And the way that you were talking to yourself, I just wanted to give you a hug. <laughs> I was like, no, Drew, <laughs> no, Drew, don't talk like that. <laughs> give me a hug or come punch me. <laughs> I mean, probably both, right? And in, in some senses, it's like, all that you had been through. And obviously, um, you know, it was, it was pretty like, it was pretty rough self-talk that you were giving to yourself over things that weren't, it wasn't like you had done something horrible. And even if you had done something horrible, nobody deserves to be talked to that way. And, and for me watching that part was definitely like, oh shit. Like, is this the right choice for him? Yeah. And, um, I think when, you know, I think in like the fairy tale version of life, this horrible thing happens and you survive and you come back, you play baseball again, you hit that home run and then the picture fades and that's it. And you live happily ever after. Like that's, that's the fairy tale. Right. And that's not real. That version where you're mic'd up in spring training and still like just being so hard on yourself over this game. That's, that was the reality. Um, how long after April 16th was it before you started to realize, uh Oh, this isn't going to stop. I am still going to have to deal with these feelings of, of this negative self-talk, these feelings of worthlessness how long before that came back for you? Yeah, I think it really became clear um, around like October. Um, it was like I said, when it, like I finally accepted that like I was feeling that, that way again. I had had like episodes throughout where I know like a couple times like I had some aggression, like irritability, where I would like slam something. I got one like one. I had a like slammed my phone or something throughout the time. And I think I might've, I did something in the garage where I slammed something. Um, so like, like I said, I had like episodes of like being very upset again, but it wasn't until like October ish when I finally like realized like, Oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. And like, 
feeling guilty about being overwhelmed because I like, what was I overwhelmed about? Like I, mm-hmm. I'm alive. Like, how can I feel guilty ever again? Like I, so I would go down that spiraling again where I was like feeling bad, but then feeling, beating myself up about feeling bad because so and it wasn't until like October ish. I went to my first like real phase of depression again. And it was interesting because it was also a sign of like the work that I had done for those months leading up, like in between my incident. And then because I was able to like, although it was like terrifying and I was like, I even had like suicidal, like suicidal thoughts again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just like, it just wrecked me. Like I was so scared. I was like, am I really not like, I'm, I'm going to have to do this again or, or not do not, not attempt again, go but through, I'm gonna, like go through these thoughts. I'm going to have to go through these thoughts again. And, um, like I said, I think it was interesting because it was also like a sign of growth because at one point I, I like either texted or just like told Diana, I'm depressed again. And like, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling depression, depressive thoughts again. Like that's, like I said, growth because like, I wasn't able to do that because I was so embarrassed before my incident to tell someone I'm feeling a certain way. But like, again, it was like, kind of like, even though it didn't make the feelings go away, like after I said to, to Diana, I feel depressed um it wasn't like I was good it was like oh I said it it's out of my system all right let's go to the next thing it was like I said that and then like I asked for some like some space and I think for the next like three days I laid in bed I ordered I ate like 12 donuts I was just like the typical like prototypical image of depression I was in there and I like I was even like um having like ideation again and again I was just so scared and it's just really beautiful how supportive the people around me were from like the most random sources, like just happened to be those three days when the, the ESPN producer called me, which is a person I've gotten very close with and still connect with today. But it just happened that he called and like, for some reason it was a phone, like I gotten phone calls and texts throughout those couple of days, but for some reason I answered his mm-hmm. and we just had this most amazing hour long conversation where I was basically just sitting there for an hour, listening to him bawling my eyes out. Mm. Um, and again, like that's, that was just kind of like a sign that I was a little more open. I wasn't like fully because like I said, I was like still kind of guilt tripping myself, but, um, I was a little bit more open, which was a sign of taking a step forward in like healing and assessing mm. these things and addressing my eternal well-being, emotional well-being, because I was able to just like, cry with somebody i was able to like tell someone i'm feeling a certain way which it sounds small but for some reason like i've noticed that when i voice it the following couple minutes or hours whatever i start to like address it instead of like just fixate i feel like crap i feel like crap when i say like i'm not feeling right right now um can i have some space it's like the following thought is like how i can i don't know Mm -hmm. how i can Mm-hmm. do something to make myself feel better which is for me usually like meditation or going on a walk but not to get too off topic around october was the first time and like i said i think it lasted intensely in, in, in an intense way for three days and then i think overall i felt pretty bad for like a week and a half two weeks mm-hmm. um until i kind of like snapped out of it and like that's the way i snapped not the way but like some of the things that helped me was just like some quotes that like kept on flashing my head was like nothing in nature blooms year round. The good is always right around the corner. The good is always so like these things that just kind of like start flashing my head and like 
performance and I would have like heard those things and I would have like made my skin crawl because of how cliche they sound. And like, I was so closed off, but, um, I went through a couple pretty severe depression phases throughout the last little bit. And it was obviously very, uh, prominent when, when the microphone was on me during the game, because that was definitely a time where I was, I don't think I was fully depressed. I was just being very hard on myself again, but, um, I kind that of would had have been a, this spring, correct? This, this past, yeah, or yeah. sorry, spring of 2021. Yeah. Yeah. The one, yeah. The example you gave me the way I was talking to myself on the microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I still have to deal with these things and it's really uncomfortable mm-hmm. at times. Uh, but like I said, mm-hmm. the good is always right around the corner. Um, just like, unfortunately the bad can be around the corner, but Mm-hmm. Um, nothing lasts forever. And I think that's what helps me get yeah. through things because no matter how bad I feel at a certain time and how it like how much it doesn't really feel like it hits me when I say mm-hmm. nothing lasts forever, when I'm in the moment of feeling like that, of feeling cr- like crap at myself, it's still there and it's still a sign that um things can improve because mm-hmm. before April 16, 2020, if I would have told myself um, nothing lasts forever. I would have just laughed at myself and like, yeah. dude, just, up. <laughs> but now, you know, like now, you know, that you felt better at some point after April and that, yeah, then October came, but you had the lived experience of knowing that it does get better at some point. It doesn't mean that it's going to be better forever. Right. But that it does get better at some point. I wondered though, like how terrifying it was for your family to have you say, I need space because I'm sure they're very scared of letting you be alone in that situation. And do you have a plan? Do they know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that's another part of this whole story that was, it's like, so I don't know, touching is just like the way my family did things for me. Um, so yeah, the first time I did ask for space, it was terrifying for my mom. I remember mm-hmm. she would text me. We had like a system where she would text me like every hour with just like an emoji. Um, and I would just respond back with an emoji. And like, okay, that sounds very simple, but really what that is, is just like, hey, is my son still alive? Yeah. Um, so it's like very heavy to think about, but um, at some point it had to happen. So it just shows the strength of my family and I, the people that were helping me because at some point they were able to let me be myself again and be by myself again, because for like three months, someone was with me almost, almost at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it be my sister moving in for a little bit, mm-hmm. um, completely changing her routine, living with me, staying the night, um, going, getting ready at my house, going to work, coming back and stuff, or my mom coming over at lunch during her lunch or my dad coming over. Mm-hmm. He, he does construction. So he's driving throughout the city all the time. So like anytime he's in the area, he'd come by, Mm-hmm. Um, just like someone always helping me. And, um, there was definitely a time where I knew like, it wasn't really talked about, um, as like blatantly, but it was like very understood that they were uncomfortable with like yeah. anything. So, um, and I, that was also what played a part in my, that, that first wave of depression again in October, because I, I part of me felt like such a, like a, like a chore is like someone, Hey, someone needs to go take care of Drew. Someone needs to be there. Someone like, I felt like a baby almost mm-hmm. like, I just felt so like someone needed to take care of me. So, 
Um, I felt like lesser about, like that was part of playing into my depression because I felt lesser about myself. Like, geez, I'm someone's gonna have to take care of me the rest of my life, or what? Like, how's this gonna work? So, um, there was just different phases of growth, like different challenges that we faced, mm-hmm. um, and it was obviously mostly emotional. Um, yeah. So, it just it was like very obviously um, tough for them and. Yeah. Um, at that time, I mean, throughout the whole thing too, I was, I was in severe, like severe pain and discomfort. So I was, I had to take pain pills to help me get through like the pain side of it. So just that whole idea was tough for my family. Like just having those things around, like that could be a very easy outlet. Um, so the whole, the whole setup was so challenging for my family. Um, but I think we all did a good job because we, we, we're just kind of like hit with it that we had to mm-hmm. talk about these things. So like I got to know my family more in the, the four months after my incident, probably than I ever did the whole 20 years before that. Cause they would just come over and I would couldn't move. So I would just lay on the couch and we would just start talking about things. So we start talking about why I did it, or we talk about how I feel now or what's going on in their life, why they feel that way. So um, it was tough for them, but it also led to a lot of um, really powerful conversations. Yeah, that um, I'm. I'm sure that it has changed the way that what you have gone through has changed the way that you communicate with with the people that are close to you. Yeah, 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 definitely. And it, it's also tough too because again, I still go through these things. So like, mm-hmm. there's times where I'm super closed off for a couple of weeks, a month at a time, um, and that triggers things with people around me. Like, hey, Drew's not talking as much because since this has come out, I'm like I've been an open book, so. When right. I start to be a little quiet, it's like warning sign. Why is he quiet? Is yeah. everything okay? So like that's a tough thing to live with for everybody around me. But um again, it just shows how how much people around me want me around. Yeah. Um it, it's almost kind of comforting um mm-hmm. because it just reminds me that people love me and mm-hmm. people love everybody. So it's just it's a beautiful thing that's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In July of this year you retired from baseball and I, I watched an interview, um, that you gave with just reporters on the field the day that you announced your retirement. Um, and you could have said like a lot of things I think about why you were retiring tons of different reasons you could have given about why you were retiring and any of them would have been accepted by the media and whatever but you were so honest. And for me, that looked like a lot of like healing and growth because you just said, I thought that I was ready to handle the mental side of baseball and I'm not. And I wonder what it looked like the process for you getting to the place where you realized that just because you love something it doesn't mean it's good for you. Right. Yeah. It's, it was, it was just so confusing. Cause again, like similar to when I was the first couple months after my incident, I thought that I had all figured out from emotional, like I'll never feel negative thought again. I kind of did that like subconsciously again with baseball. Like I, I go back and like, I'm just going to love, I'm playing baseball with one eye. How can I like ever take it for granted? Or like, how can I ever forget that I shouldn't even be able to be doing this, but again, getting back in that environment. Um, I, I didn't know any difference. Like I, I went back to a lot of the same habits of like, when I didn't do well, I would go home and like 
overanalyze why I didn't do well and like overthink things. And I definitely did a better job of like giving myself grace and like having a bit the overall perspective that like what I'm able to do right now is, is, is super powerful. And it's like, mm-hmm. I, I'm grateful to be experiencing it and grateful to be in a position that's actually like inspiring other people. But again, I still went to some old habits and thought patterns that were just so uncomfortable. And like, I also just didn't do well, like from a, from a performance standpoint, I was doing horrible. So like, it's also hard to just turn off the competitive juices that I have in my body where I wanted to be a good baseball player too. So like, even though I had one last eye and like, it was that, that was the challenge that, to, that played into my performance. I didn't want to be doing that bad. So I felt bad about doing bad. So, um, I just got to a place that was uncomfortable and I wasn't able to address it. I wasn't able to keep up just because of like, for me, I think it was because of just how often baseball is or how, how many games we play in a short amount of time. It's, it's hard to keep up with it. And it's hard not to go down that road for someone who was as, uh, I don't know, for me, I was severely uh, affected by these, by these thoughts and stuff. So while I think a lot of people are, um, and it's just a hard environment, it's kind of like, if you, I don't know, for a Vegas comparison, if you are a dealer and you you end up getting lung cancer, and you go back into the environment that everyone's smoking around you. It's just, it makes it tough. So that's yeah. kind of what happened. I went back to the environment that um, led to a lot of the, the bad habits I had. Um, not all of them, like it's definitely not baseball's fault. And it's not the only reason why I had suicidal thoughts, but um, it was, it was a, one of the factors of a lot of things that went on inside. So being around it again and and trying to do things the way I was doing before, because I would play the games of like the mental games of like, well, that all that stuff got me to the big league. So maybe I need to do some of those again. Like maybe being hard on myself is what drove me to be a really good athlete. So like playing those mind games of going back and forth of like what actually helped me, what was good for me. Um, it was just really tough. And it was, it was a challenge for me to disassociate at times or separate these things and just like understand that, like basically it was just hard for me to focus on the perspective that I think I've gained mm-hmm. since my incident. Um, and at times I think I lost that, that, that sight at times. And it was, it was really scary because again, same thing as October, the first time I had a suicidal thought, um, it just kind of wrecked me. And I don't think I ever had suicidal thoughts from baseball, um, like during it, but I just wasn't right. I wasn't doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I was getting really irritable. I was really short with Diana. I just, I found myself like looking at, baseball is work for the first time, which was like the biggest separator for me because I never, I love baseball so much that like, no matter how bad it got, I still like had this hope that the next day, like I'll figure it out. It'll turn around and I'll make that adjustment. And I enjoyed the work that it took to be a baseball player. But for the first time, I was like starting to feel like a, like a, like a work part of it. Or like it, it felt like work, which um, for me, baseball isn't yeah. never like an actual job. Um, but it did. And that's when it was like another sign that I don't know, maybe, maybe I can continue the work that I'm doing on the mental health advocate side and help people enjoy baseball more from the lessons I've learned and the experiences I've gone through. For me, like watching you say those things, um, that day on the field, it was like, that is one really self-aware, strong, brave man. And I bet old drew would have been like that guy's weak 
Yeah. Even, right? even me. Did you see it, it that way? That did you see this is a this is a really brave thing I'm doing instead of did you have to talk yourself out of that into that or no? So I think that's what's I think that's what I pride myself in now is like I'm able to just let things come out and like I didn't think about that before the 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 interview. Um, I mean, I've talked about it with my the, the therapist and stuff, but like why I'm retiring, but um, I wasn't like going to the, going into the setup with the cameras, like, all right, I'm going to say this because yeah. it's just kind of like, I've naturally been able to just be vulnerable, which is like just saying whatever feels the way it feels. And mm-hmm. so I didn't really like plan to say anything. It just kind of came out of me, which is what happens. As you can tell, like with this podcast, I just start talking and things just start falling out of me. But, um, there was definitely a side of me that still kind of thought like, how can you say that baseball is bad? Like, don't blame baseball. Like baseball is giving you everything. Like, so there's definitely a part of me that was kind of part of myself before saying those things. Cause I don't want, I don't want to discredit all that baseball has given me and all the people that have helped me throughout my career and think that like, dang, this guy doesn't even really like it. So like, there's a part of me that kind of played that mind game again, but again, at the same time, in the big picture, it's something that I definitely pride myself in because I think vulnerability is like the strongest thing anyone can do for themselves because I've, I've, I've experienced how much healing it, it allows myself to do. And also I think I've been able to experience a cool, a cool thing too, because people have told me that watching me be vulnerable kind of like that helps them do it more within their life. And just kind of having any kind of impact like that is so fulfilling. Yeah. Well, you're having an indelible impact. That's, that's for sure. (laughs) I wonder what you think 12 year old, how you think things could have been different or maybe would have been different or might've been different for 12 year old Drew. If he had seen somebody like you talking the way that they're talking and somebody like, you know, Naomi Osaka talking the way that she's talking. I do think that athletes have been talking so much more lately (laughs) about their mental health and about what their sport can do to them mentally and what the drive to be the best can do to you mentally. Do you think that that would have made a difference for you as a young athlete? Yes. Um, and I, I just think it's so important what people are doing because like for me, I think it's slowly been introduced into like organization, like sport organizations and like, um, regimens i guess of like hey take care your mental side is just as important but i think it's mm-hmm. been so like vaguely talked about where it's like yeah but how like mm-hmm. how like how do i work my mental game like so for me i would hear certain athletes say like mental side is really important or you hear like mentors or read books that say mental side is really important but for me i didn't realize how honestly how simple mental work can be like like i said just having a, a nice walk by yourself with no music no phone whatever or sitting in a room meditating with no sound and no nothing going on or like going to have a great lunch with a friend or like me, like the time I spent with my dog that like just totally lifts me up. Like doing a bunch of mental work doesn't mean like the full grind of like the same, like the same way you do like physical work where you're like, you feel exhausted afterwards. It's like, it's all these little things that add up to huge, I don't know, huge uh, gains Mm -hmm. of, emotional comfort because like I said it's it's uh it's 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 hard to accept that simplicity is like the key to things like taking back all the things that make things complex and just like 
just being with yourself or just being present in the moment with like no plans, no thoughts towards the future, what you're doing next week for work or for a vacation or whatever you're thinking about next or thinking in the past of what, um, what you did wrong or what you wish you had done differently or how good something was in the past. Like, how can you be present? Like that is the mental work. And that's the things that, um, for me, I found is what, is what helps. But, um, to go to the question, I think it's so cool that it's unfortunate the way it's happening. Cause I think it's coming from a lot of people getting to an overwhelming place that they feel like they need to step away. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think it's kind of like a beautiful thing that they're willing to use their story to help the next generation to shine light on these things that might help them address things in a more, I don't know, preventative way to where things don't have to get so bad before you step back and realize, dang, I really need to go help myself and and take care of myself um, from an emotional and mental um, place. So that way I can perform in a physical place too. So um, I think that's what people are doing with like Kevin Love and Mm -hmm. Naomi Osaka and Simon Bills and Mm -hmm. um, all these players, Michael Phelps, like everyone just doing the, the, the grunt work of getting this out in the open because I don't know, again, to compare it to the physical side, at one point, like in baseball and sports, there wasn't physical trainers and strength coaches, a part of the staff full time. So like the first thing that did that was probably kind of weird, like a physical trainer. Like I know in baseball for a long time, the saying was you can't make the club in the tub. So anybody that was getting any kind of treatment, like any kind of like preventative work, it was viewed as like, oh, that guy's not physically strong. Mm -hmm. And then now all of a sudden it's like, no, like we need to like, get our sleep we need to recover we need to stretch we need all these things help us perform to win games so i i kind of view the same thing like this is just like a starting point of the mental side really incorporated into the daily stuff of baseball or daily thing of sports and then um for every every corporation and every career yeah totally immediately after you retired from baseball the giants hired you as a mental health advocate which basically means that it is your job to keep talking about this. (laughs) And we talked yesterday about how talking about these things can offer, you talked about at the beginning of this, like offer you more clarity every time you can talk about it with somebody else. There's also that connection, right? To say like, well, I might not have the same problems that Drew's had, but I deal with this perfectionism and we can relate to each other in that way. And that makes us both know that these aren't weird things that we aren't unique in them, that we aren't alone in them. Right. But it can also be hard to really kind of relive these moments of your life. Um, why keep talking about this? Um, like I said, when I was describing the day, um, if I can help someone not feel the way that I felt the months leading up to April 16th, um, that's what fuels me to do this because like I said, it's hard to talk about the worst day of my life basically. But um, again, I've been in a fortunate enough situation now where I've gotten to like hear the feedback, like whether it be like social media messages and things from other people, like out outsource people saying like, this is helping me or thank you for doing this. This, this helps people that are, don't have the voice to share things and, like I said, I'm in a fortunate situation where I get, I get that external validation that the stuff that I'm doing is helping. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, I just, I don't want anyone in the world, if it's possible to feel that way because it's the most hopeless feeling in the world. And, um, it's just crazy to think that 
ignoring your emotions and ignoring what's going on inside of you can actually lead to life and death, life or death situations. And it's, that's, that doesn't get any more serious than that. Like nothing in life is more serious than life and death. So um, I'm not saying everyone's going down that road and everyone's like, like if they're not doing, they're not, everyone's working their way towards that outcome, but I don't see why it's worth uh, risking. And if it takes 30 minutes a month, to talk about things in a deeper way to try to learn why you are the way you are and why you think the way you think, why wouldn't you do it? And um, not saying it's easy because it's definitely not. There's definitely times where the last thing I want to do is go sit down and, and talk about things that, that just happened or how, how I'm feeling lately. But every time I do it, like you mentioned, I get the better sense of clarity, which automatically makes me feel like I understand it more, which can help me find a game plan to not feel that way or to just, find the patience to let it run its course because sometimes that's all that's all I can do like I said sometimes it takes just like sitting there and letting waiting for that that good to happen or waiting for something to spark that that positive perspective again and um I think for me if I can help anybody enjoy their life more and then in turn they they are able to do that through their experiences and their relatability to the next person that they talk to and creating that ripple effect, not coming just from me, but just from the people around that are learning, like, dang, just kind of talking about things does make me feel better. Or every once in a while letting out a cry when things get bad, like that's something that it's weird that I, it's like, as soon as I'm done crying over something tough, I get this like sense of like cleanse. That's so, it's so weird that I'm almost like happy that I cried. And it's like two years ago, I would have laughed at myself for saying that, but I don't want anyone to feel the way I felt on April 16th. And if that takes talking about things, um, which is in turn the, the biggest example or the biggest lesson that I'm trying to do with myself. So mm-hmm. I can share that with others. Um, then I'm so willing to do that. When I was watching the E60 and when I read the story and everything, I was thinking about how exhausting it is to be a perfectionist and like how tired you get of being in your own head and how you feel like you're on, you know, the hamster wheel. Right. And you're just going and going, 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 can't stop, can't stop. And I'm, and the word that kept coming into my head that I just hope for you so much as this, I, I just hope you, you have contentment. Being content is like such a hard thing for somebody who has this drive to be better all the time. Right. Sure. Um, and I hope that, that, you know, you have, a lot of days that are like that. I'm not going to wish for you a lifetime of it because none of us are are going to get it right. And I think that's the reality of it. But I am so glad you're here, Drew. Thank you. Like I said, I'm grateful to be able to still be here talking and still be functioning enough to just kind of be myself again and be yeah. able to do this stuff because it could have easily not been that way. It could have there have been all kinds of different outcomes. So um, thank you for having me and thank you for listening to me ramble. Oh, no, that was awesome. After editing this episode, I sent Drew a text to say that I had managed to trim it by all of two minutes. <laughs> and I congratulated him on winning the longest episode award. These conversations are important, but they are not easy. 
It's not easy to sit down in front of your computer with a complete stranger and relive these most raw, desperate moments of your life. That Drew is sharing his journey in real time is one of the most powerful, brave, and important things I have ever witnessed. I am beyond grateful for the time and honesty he offered in this space. I cannot begin to imagine the number of people he has helped already, and he will help in the future. Life is hard, and it is also beautiful. And if we can hang on during the hard stuff, the beauty will eventually return. Drew is a bright light, and like all of us, he is a supremely worthwhile work in progress. All I could think about listening to his story is what I said to him at the end of our conversation. I am so glad he's here. One more friendly reminder that if you value this podcast and want to support it, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow to become a member. That's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W. Your contribution will help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and give you access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. If you or someone you love is struggling, please remember you are also a supremely worthwhile work in progress, and none of us should do the work of life alone. If you are having suicidal thoughts, please ask for help. In Canada, call 1-833-456-4566 or text 45645. In the U.S., call 1-800-273-8255. Thanks, as always, for listening. The past is now